0: And so it's important that, you know, you go and do that due diligence through the pre-meeting with the council or get hands on that local council regulations as to is there any divergence from what the council wants to happen in their own particular areas versus what the res code is saying. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. And today we're going to talk about pre-acquisition property development due diligence. Now before I get into all of that, let me introduce my beautiful co-host. Drum rolls, Cheryl. How are you today, Cheryl?
1: I am awesome, Austin, as always and always so much fun to be here. I am so pumped about what we're going to be talking about today because it's um it's stuff that we all have to do every time we look at development sites, which is due diligence.
0: Yes, yes. And it's, it's all about, you know, what to look out for before you put the pen to the paper, right? This is about, you know, sometimes even you've put the pen to the paper and, you know, you have a due diligence clause in there. And what are the key things to look out for? You know, it's, it's those moments where, you know, oh, the site is too good to be true. And, uh, you know, you've done the numbers, you've crunched the numbers, you've done the feasibilities, and the numbers make sense. But this is all about taking the bosses, making sure that what are the implications? Can this actually be done, right? And let's start off with a story, right, before we go into a lot of detail. I was reading, you know, one of the group posts today. And so this guy was basically talking about, hey, I have a house the council has refused to put to allow me to put a duplex at the back and I was like wait, wait a minute you know where did the due diligence go why didn't you do the due diligence to know that council would not allow you to build two duplexes at the back and so you know how did that happen like where was the leakage right you know that's naturally what my thinking was and so you hear these stories where you know people settle on the projects by the projects without doing proper due diligence and then finding out Bad things, right? Finding out things that can impact the profitability of the site or a development site.
1: There's a real, I guess, like again, fine line because you know you 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 don't want to get to a point where you get paralysis analysis where you're like, I mean, you know, you're almost like an investigator where you're almost looking for things to things things that to make it a a deal breaker, but yet you don't want to do too little um, due diligence as well. One of my I was going to say my favorite example. It's not really a favorite because it didn't turn out so well. But, but it's a good example of, yes, there's a level of due diligence that you can do when you tick off things. However, it's also what I have found, it's not what you know but also who you know as well when it comes to due diligence because there are things that are um, not everyone will know about a particular site and it might be very, very specific where it might be something the neighbor knows or something that your consultant knows or something. So I, I think there's an incredible, sometimes it's a bit of luck as well. Uh, it, it is incredibly valuable to really build that network, build the, the connections that you have because there might be someone, because there might be something in the works. Okay, So a good example would be actually at part of the networking event that, that we had in the Sunshine Coast last, last month. So a few of the developers there were talking about a specific area and they said, and it's only when you've put in your application and you're in the DA process, that council in a particular area, this was sort of Lansborough, actually has a flood overlay, which you can't find anywhere else. Like there's nothing that you can't find it on council's website or whichever, and so a f- there were two developers who said yes that's absolutely right because the planners at the time said, yeah no you can't find anything on our website because it's you know we're sort of backdating it or whichever and so it's that sort of level of you can't do it to a certain extent unless you know someone who's developed there unless you know another planner an independent planner that's hit that that sort of hurdle before you wouldn't have picked that up doing your doing your normal public ddd D, D. so i think there's yeah there's a certain level of this is how much tick you tick
0: there is this question that i always ask myself is how much is too much you know when you talk about extensive nature of the due diligence right and again you know i might be the most biased person when it comes to due diligence because i'm always one of those people who would overdo versus underdo when it comes to due diligence you know, I. I remember probably about eight months ago I said no to a site where I had spent close to $10,000 on all the surveys and the arborist and everything and the only reason I walked away was because of that particular tree where arborist was pretty sure that the tree can go and the council would not just confirm that the tree would go and that tree if was there would make the would break the site completely and so there was no profit in the site if the th- tree was there. And uh, we chased and chased and chased the council and we were in the due diligence period. And, uh, and the last final wording was that the, I spoke to the council outburst I still remember. He confirmed to me over the phone, he said, Moss, I can tell you the tree can go but I cannot put it in writing until I've, until I've gone through the site and seen through. Basically based on what you're telling me I can say that the tree can go, right? And I was like, you know, should I take a punt and do this or should I just walk away and cuff up the 10,000 that I've spent? And I walked away from the deal. And funnily enough, like three weeks later, he responded saying, hey, the tree can go. But it's, it's one of those things, right? That you're like, okay, that's fine. Um, I'll find something better. This is what I'll write off to the experience. I'll write off to better time management. I'll write off to something else, but I would rather take these small hits than a big hit in the future, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It could have gone either way. He could have said, actually, we wouldn't have the
0: 50 been... 50 It's a coin flip, right, basically.
1: It really is. But I guess this, it's the point that we, we... It's a big reminder, right? It's that to have a mindset of abundance as well, to be able to say, yeah, that's one. That's one side I lost, but then I'll get another one. So, And to not be hung up about it, because this is the thing with due diligence. You know, nine out of ten sides will not stack for whatever reason so if you manage to hit the financial the financial feasibility and it ticks that but then you've got due diligence that you know something comes up then you know move on to the next one we say again if it was that easy everyone would be doing it so maybe let's highlight some of the key types of due diligence that we can do on a site and what are the essential ones and then we can talk about some of the More rarer ones that are more specific to particular areas because not every area will be affected by you know mining and all sorts of things so maybe over to you you can highlight highlight a few of your your favorite ones
0: I think the the good segue is definitely trees I think the first thing that I always look onto sites and I know that there are green councils who are very pedantic about you know weeds that they call trees and then there are other councils who are a lot more understandable on you know getting rid of some of the trees but you know there is a distinction between high medium and low retention trees and majority of the counselors that I've come across would always say that you know the higher and the medium sometimes retention trees needs to stay and so how do you navigate the site through. The most important one when it comes to trees that a lot of people don't think about is the tree protection zones and so every tree has its own Protection zone where you can't do much around it. You know, you can have a permeable path or something, but you can't build anything in that tree protection zone. The interesting bit is this if there is a tree on a neighboring property and it's even not a high retention tree, it's a medium or even a low retention tree, and its protection zone comes into your property, then because it's their tree and you can't take it down, you can't build. And so it becomes a very interesting conversations in a lot of these places where you know you might have a funny neighbor, you know who might not be able to work with you, or is not ready to let the tree go because of some of these things. And so, while you're checking out trees on your own side, it's always important to see what's sitting on the boundaries of the property, especially you know the side boundaries, especially if you're doing like a four unit site or a, you know three unit site where you would have. You know houses lined up you know back of the houses lined up to one side of the property and see as to what is at that, those fences is there any major trees that would impact your tpzs and put a solution focused hat as to okay how does this go about you know how do you go about you know finding a solution to that and same goes with the easements, right? So, you know, people always look at easements to their own properties but you need to also look at easements to the neighboring properties and see how does that impact yourself. How close can you come to the easements as well? There is always issues around, you know, the offsets and setbacks when it comes to easements and you can't put plants or you can't have landscaping, you know, very close to the easements as well. So those are two of my favorites, you know, every time I look at the site I would basically start off there. What about you?
1: Trees, trees, and easements. So, yeah. Apart from that, bushfire. So, depending on where you're where you're building, bushfire is a big one. Obviously, looking at at flooding. Bushfire doesn't necessarily mean. I know that we when we we're doing lots of uh, land subdivisions up in in Sydney, in the hills area. So there would be particular bushfire zones and that would affect the zoning. And the zoning would mean that, you know, one block might be low density where another block might end up being what they call E4, environmental environmental living, which meant that you have to have community titles, which meant that you had to have larger lots. And it meant that, you know, there are particular APZs, which is asset protection zones for Bushfires, so it didn't mean necessarily that you couldn't build in it, but it does mean that if there's properties that are within, depending on different bushfire bands, so they they call it BAL B A L, so that you've got your you know your fire zone,
0: bushfire attack level,
1: yeah, you know twenty nine and all these different bands, depending on if your your house, if you're building a property. So whoever it is that ends up buying that particular property that you subdivide it, that particular property actually becomes a bit of a lesser value because not everyone is going to want to build in a bushfire zone because it affects the, the build price. It tends to be more expensive. There tends to be a little bit of a slope as well. So it makes it a little bit less desirable. So it's just being able to say, when you're doing your due diligence and you're pricing up your lots, if you're building in a bushfire zone, that the lots that are affected by bushfire bell ratings may be valued a little bit less
0: as well. Yeah. And, and bushfire zones are interesting. I think um, it also impacts the landscape side of things too. So when you have the landscape plans of a, in a bushfire zone, councils would always talk about big canopy trees that do not overhang the house. And so you need to ensure that while the council is persistent about you having say for example x amount of trees on the house or on the lot and when you're building a particular site you know they might want you to not overhang which means that you are using a lot more pus in relation to you know providing for that landscape so it's interesting you know these these how these some of these is overlap with each other right so the other one that you mentioned is the flood ones you know that's an interesting one as well.
1: Yeah, we know, uh, especially with, with areas in terms of New South Wales and Queensland, which had some pretty big floods recently um, in, the last, in the last year where, you know, you, they might not have had flooding in those areas and we've got floods now. Uh, so wherever it is that you're, you're looking to develop, make sure you do your due diligence as to where the flood zones are I think it also helps to be able to give insure, you know, insurance companies a call to see their thoughts around, you know, are they are they insuring houses in those areas? Has have the premiums gone up recently? If so, why? So these are just part of the everyday things because people people, people are more aware of sledding these days. And particularly if you're going into a new area. Which at the moment, if it's nice and sunny and there's no flooding, then it looks all nice and yeah, nice and bright. And you've got the locals, you know, lo- you're, you're you're a newbie coming into a new area where you're like, oh, it looks fantastic. It's flat here. There's a nice little creek down the road. It's fantastic for lifestyle. And then the locals are like,
0: they don't know that
1: it's flood affected. Yes. So <laughs> again, doing that sort of due diligence, but talking to talking to the neighbours, knowing that you have local, a local team that understand the area, I think you're going to get a lot of really good intel from, from that aspect.
0: And again, I think flood zones are the same, right? It's not that you can't build on the flood zones. You know, there are ways that you, know, you can raise up the level and you know, put the sites on the pegs and you know, do the build. I think the tricky bit in Melbourne is getting the Melbourne water to sign off on the flood zone. And so a lot of people think about the flood zones on the site on its own But if there is a flood zone at the front of the property and if it overlays, say, for example, your um, driveway you know, or, or the pathway that you're going to build in and naturally, you know, your stormwater doesn't work because there would be a pool of water if it's under the flood zone, those requirements are very stringent. And so while the council might have no issues from you building that, the water authority might not allow you. And so the council will be like, well, we don't care. You just go ahead and build, just convince these people you know, to, to do the build and that's where it becomes really interesting and so that's why, you know, knowing all the right consultants and making sure that, you know, you're seeking the right approvals upfront, you know, Melbourne Authority um, approval, for example, or, or City Westwater, whoever that you go with, you know, depending on where you are in Victoria, only costs about $400, you know, it takes about two, two and a half weeks for them to come back and provide you with an advice but, you know, it's it's one of those where you know, you might think that everything works, but as soon as you go down the route of civil, the planning approval would work okay. As, you, as soon as you go down the path of civil, you would realize that, the you know, the building approval is where you would get stuck. So, it's it's interesting on, on a lot of these things.
1: Yeah, over to you. I think we're going to ping pong on, on our favorite favorite due diligence items.
0: What else? I would say the other one which is quite interesting is the local council rules. Now, Again, when you're talking about the due diligence side of things, everyone talks about the risk code. And majority of the people or majority of the architects of the pieces know the risk code because they've been operating in that industry for a very long time. Um, but especially in Victoria, because there is no CDC per se, you know, where you can fast track your application, every, every now and then you would find that local councils have their own guidelines from a development perspective which basically supersedes a lot of the risk code requirements. And so it's important that, you know, you go and do that due diligence through the pre-meeting with the council or get hands on that local council regulations as to is there any divergence from what the council wants to happen in their own particular areas versus what the risk code is saying. Okay. For example, I'll give you a typical example. One of the sites that we have, In Diamond Creek, that is, you know, about to be kicked off through the bills side of things, there are various different garden precedents um, available in the area, and every garden precedence allows how much is the build limit you know is it a low density is it a medium density and so while the zones define that as well within the zone they would have these garden precincts overlapping the the normal zones of the 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 normal zones of the state and uh, the garden precincts overlapping between the two of them and so it becomes really really important to understand what council needs and what council requirements are on some of these things a typical example also with this is when you talk about zones and the council regulations is, for example, a high-density zone, which is an RGZ zone in Melbourne, you could potentially do a high-rise there. Okay, A lot of people think that just because I can do a high-rise there, I can do townhouses because, you know, that's still medium density. Some councils may allow you and some councils would say, no, we don't want townhouses here. We don't want, we want a high-rise here. And I've come to a few of these examples where the council is persistent that you know it's our RGZ zone and we want the high-rise we don't want townhouses there and so while from a person's perspective you know they were thinking about building five or six townhouses there of a bulky nature all of a sudden the council shoots you down and say well this is an underdevelopment and they actually want an overdevelopment in an area like that and so it's important to understand some of these intricacies and um, you know some of these things are not written rules some of these things are you know rules set up by the, the 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 person who's setting up the game right so you need to play by their rules you know you can't just follow the rules that everyone else is following
1: and often that might you know you be able to find that instead sort of like you know there might be a, a precinct master plan where they've said you know we actually want high density here because we want to have a train station. We want to have a shopping center, and so we need to have these sorts of larger, uh, higher density living because we have to this support all this extra infrastructure that we're we're putting in as well, and all these extra services. Oh, which is a good segue into another point, which is services. So, you're in terms of stormwater, in terms of sewer all that side of things. Services, when I was dealing with areas, one of the key things to be aware of is that especially when in greenfield areas, like water may not be ready in time for when your subdivision is completed or the sewer pipe has not been laid to get to that point. So it's really important as well, especially if you're working in greenfield areas, not so much in brownfield because you know there's barely established but you've got to make sure there's sufficient capacity in established areas for you it's sufficient capacity in greenfield you've got to make sure that there's it's there because <laughs> it might have been you might be zoned for development you might technically be able to develop it however you might not have like the Uh, the council and the area might not actually have sufficient services to your development for it to actually be delivered. So what, what it might be is like, say, for example, with Sydney Water at the time, they said, you know, we have sufficient capacity for 1,500 homes, right, for this area. And so you actually have to look at the development pipeline to see whether the, if you put a development application in, if your, your property and your project is going to fall within that 1,500 lot, because if it's not, then you could be waiting another five years. And so from that aspect, is it, you've got you've to know the, the way of the which way to go from that. Aspect.
0: Yeah. It's a very interesting comment that you make here, right? Because I remember looking at the site about a year ago now where everything was a tick and um, I was going through you know the civils and I was like wait a minute where is sewer I can't find and this is established area we're talking about right I was like where is sewer I can't find any sewer diagrams and so I called the architect and he's like huh yeah that's weird you know where is sewer and so I was 100% sure that it was a software error because it wasn't showing up and so we requested the plans and Apparently, that particular area didn't had sewer. It was just stormwater tanks, you know, those discharge, you know, those tanks, you know, those um, septic tanks, you know, that was going in there. And I was like, wow, okay. Empty it out. Yeah. And this was like a small pocket in a well-established area where there was sewer everywhere, just that small pocket that didn't have any sewer. And I was like, wow, this is just so interesting. Like, you can't assume anything these days, right?
1: <laughs> and that's why you've got to do your due diligence to just to take you meant to tick the key, key boxes to say, yep, okay. Because if I'm not wrong, there's a fee that you've got to pay for that service of the truck.
0: That's, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, you, you can get some of these through Dial before you dig. Some of those reports basically can come through there. But some of the detailed ones like, you know, legal point of discharge, you're talking about Melbourne Water Approval or Water Authority Approvals, etc. You would have to pay some fees to basically get that, those plans from the council. I think the best person who's your friend is when you are doing some of these due diligence around civil is of course a land surveyor, right? They would have access to a lot of these things on their fingertips. And so they would know who to reach out to, when to reach out to. And so having them on retainer, while you're looking at some of these things is quite important, quite the key. I think a lot of people depend only on the architect and they forget that a lot of these things are not architect related. And so while architect has a big place in, you know, property due diligence or property development due diligence and feasibilities, you know, some of these things are out of their reach. You know, they don't understand civils, typically. Typical architects don't understand civils. They don't understand a lot of these things. And so they can point you in the, in the right direction. Um, but they might not be the right person to provide you some of this advice.
1: Cool. Now over to you. I picked one, you pick another one.
0: My next one would be potentially precedences in the area. And I mean, there are so many things that you can consider. Let's talk about slopes first. I think we haven't really talked about slopes. Let's talk about slopes. I think slope is an important one.
1: So my question is, is 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 it good that the slope goes up or is it good that the slope goes down?
0: Well I mean the slope should always go down against the property right that's what my understanding is that's how I've been trained and taught that you know it should always come towards the street level rather than going away from the street level so that you can work with the stormwater and you don't need to have those water pumping pits at the end of the property pushing the water up or you're looking for a legal point of discharge at the end of the property you know fighting with the neighbor. So it's always important that it's sloping you know towards the street you know that's key rule number one you know that's where it all starts. Number two naturally people think that you know slope is bad right so one meter slope two meter slope people walk away from the site and yes you know generally that rule of thumb works um, but it's also important to understand that the bigger the site becomes the easier it is to work with the bigger slope right you can build along the lines of the slope and so you know for example a two meter slope on a 500 square meter block or a 300 square meter block is massive but a two meter slope on a 4,000 square meter block is not massive you can work with that slope it's quite easier from that perspective also it also depends on your structural engineer how he works with the slope because you know one of the things people get scared from the slope is is the build cost that it's going to cost be it the retaining walls the retention etc all of those things right so it's important that how does your structural engineer work through some of these things? And again, this is not the part of due diligence typically, but when you're costing out through the feasibility side of things, a slope would generally add a bit of more to the contingency side of things too. Okay. But that doesn't mean that a flat site is an easier site. You know, I have two sites right now. One is pretty slopy site where the civils are quite low versus another site, which looks quite flat, but the civils are very, very high. And why is that? Well, the civils are high because the bore piers that are going in the other sites are just millions, you know, I'm just over-exaggerating, but there is a lot of them. Whereas the site with the slope, you know, they've, you know, they've worked through the site in such a way that, you know, it's, just, it's a stepped house and, you know, it's not causing a lot of re- retaining walls, etc. Both of them are corner the lots, so, um, while the site remains quite flat, um, the site neighboring those are quite high and deep are high and, you know, wide. And so, you know, you have to provide retaining for some of those sites as well. So it's, it's interesting as to how you look at slopes and they play a really, really big part on the stormwater discharge, on the building side of things, on the slope, on the, the retaining walls and the building cost and all of these things comes into play um, when you're looking through the slope.
1: You raise a point Moss, around, you know, the, the pierings because it also depends on the type of soil and if you've got rock in an area, right? Because if you've got a rocky, rocky area, which means hopefully you've got a more solid foundation, and uh, that means you won't have to peer down as far. Um, however, if you've got something that's pretty sandy and 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 not as solid, then you're gonna have peers that right enter in and, and and pretty deep. So ha- doing some due diligence and understanding the type so that you can factor in so if you're you know you're again as the developer if you're if you're building if you're not building then maybe you don't have to worry so that's someone else's problem but if you're building something then you're gonna have to want to know you know well I'm gonna have to account for how much contingency for peering do I need to account for is this sufficient is it going to be sufficient as well as yeah that's I think that's that's something that's quite important, um, especially when you're getting quotes from, from builders, whether it's you're doing a townhouse or a house, and if you know that's a particular area doesn't you know needs quite a bit of peering and, and they've quoted you on something that you look and you sort of go, mm, I'm not quite sure that's enough," then you want to make sure that you've got a bit of contingency in your, your feasibility.
0: Yes, definitely. Over to you. What's your next one?
1: That's my... This is... Oh, I've got a second one. Okay, excellent. I wanted to talk about mining overlays and mine subsidence. I'm not sure if you get a lot of that in Victoria. Probably not.
0: No. I think Adelaide, a few. You get a lot of mining ones and... um, What is it? Aries? No, quarries. Quarries. So you get a lot of them in Adelaide, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So so mining... Mining's a, a fairly big thing in in New South Wales, particularly in areas like Newcastle, uh, sorry Hunter Valley, Hunter Valley, Newcastle, Wollongong. So it's something where you need to be aware of uh, what they call mine subsidence, and you do need to get clearance, uh, not clearance, I guess, uh, a, cons- a, a report, obviously, and if there is a level of mine subsidence, to understand how does, how does that impact your development in terms of building because what happens is with mines and not that I'm an expert in this but I I've had I have looked at sites with mine subsidence what it could be is that there's mining that's happened underneath a particular area previously and that mine might actually be dormant so there's subsidence right but what actually means is that there's any development that happens on top there is a good chance that there, there might be some settling of the land
0: certainly yeah.
1: yeah so there's a few things that need to be taken into account like in terms of what you're building the types of building that you put onto it in terms of foundations and all that are going to be a little bit different if it hasn't settled and also insurance there's a big insurance companies don't like to insure houses that are on mining online on as well. I've come across sites where there may be a dormant mine but you you know I've actually had to ring up the the mining company which had the license over it just to sort of go hey are you guys planning to be doing anything in the next few years and and they've said yeah well we're not doing anything at the moment but it's there just in case so we don't we don't actually know when we're going to when we're going to give it the sign off when we're actually going to be using it, but at the moment. And if that's the case, then effectively you can't do anything until that mine, uh, basically, that's been cleared for 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 active active use. So that is something. I mean, from a in terms of again, New South Wales, where the, a lot of that activity does happen, particularly in the the outskirts, to be aware of and the and the impact of that on, on developments as well.
0: And, and there is some contamination that tends to happen through with the soil as well, isn't it? Where it was a previously a mining site and you know, I just recently read somewhere where you know, while they've given a sign-off, you, know, you had to get a sign-off from the land contamination and the compaction reports, etc. to ensure that you know, the land is clean and clear and so there is a cost involved with a lot of those things as well.
1: Yeah, and contamination. If you're purchasing a land that's been farming, any sort of manufacturing, any light industry,
0: gold mining,
1: you want to you want to get contamination reports because if it's a farm and if you've got animals or like, especially if if you've got ve- like vegetables as well, like, and if they've used pesticides, like, that stuff needs to be cleaned out. And you have no idea, like the things that farmers like hide in 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 the middle of their hundred acre, hundred acre properties. <laughs> there's something, there's something suspect somewhere, right? And so the contamination, contamination reports, the geotech reports will bring these things up, and and you've got to take into account that you've got to remediate those areas, yeah. As well,
0: yeah. My turn. Oh
1: yes, over you too.
0: Okay so I'm going to talk about things that can be moved but it's it's good to know about right and they are things like electricity poles, bus stops, you know stormwater pits and so it's it's good to know from a due diligence perspective and they can move or even like you know those zebra crossings or you know all of these things so they can be moved but it's good to know and it's good to put a tick against it that they can be moved to a right place, right? So
1: I haven't moved a bus stop before, so.
0: Yeah, same as me. Look, I'm, I've, I've, I've met a few people who have been caught by bus stop. I was, I was fingers crossed. I was lucky where there was a zebra crossing near a school and I didn't have to move it. I was just, you know, bypassing it by a little bit. And so the, the traffic guy said, hey, this is all good.
1: Why did the zebra cross the road?
0: Yeah, I was like, you know, is it not just black and white lines that I can draw like two feet away?
1: Can I just like white white out this area and then just move it up here? Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: it. I bring some black paint and paint it on the road and just... People
1: won't know. They just follow the black and white lines. (laughs) That's it. The lollipop person will be very upset because they'll be like, where are my lines (laughs) gone?"
0: Well, the simpleton me, that's what I thought would be the case but of course you know it, it does take a lot more than that in moving the bus stop and moving these lines and moving the stormwater and the el- electricity poles and so it's always important to understand where is the driveway going to go for a particular development and if there is an electricity pole and if you're going to move it then how much it's going to cost x y and z and that, that, you know, that particular service would be able to move it, right? Majority of the times they are, you know, it's just that, you know, you haven't allowed for some of these costs. It's very rare where a service might come back and say, hey, we can't move it. But it's always good to pick up a phone and just, you know, have a check or, you know, and seek some advisor on some of these things. It's very quick and dirty.
1: Yeah, often it will be, yeah, we can move it. It will cost you. He yes. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And so it needs a contingency, right? You know, and they are not cheap to move. You're talking about, you know, $10,000, $20,000 um, for moving a bloody electricity pole. And so, yeah, um, it's always fun. It's always fun. At least watching them is always fun. So,
1: yeah, I haven't, like I said, I haven't moved a bus stop. And, 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 and I'm assuming then that you'd need, you know, if you were to have to move it, there'd be traffic reports of all sorts that you've got to have in place. You've got to get council input. You've got to have a really good reason as to why you're moving it and so on.
0: And the implications it would have, right? It would The implications, if you're moving an uh, electricity pole, you might have to cut off or provide a secondary option. And so, yes, you know, there is a lot of overlaps that happens with a lot of these things, right? I think traffic traffic is an interesting one because... You know, not only do you have to get the traffic reports, you know, sometimes there is traffic management that comes into place on a lot of these things too, right? You know, one of the things uh, I never do pick up a site ever on a main road, especially a development site over a main road, because, you know, with everything else together, there is this traffic management that comes into place and these lollipop people are not cheap. I tell you, these people in, you know, (laughs) red and, you know...
1: They get paid a good lot of money to stand there and go, don't, don't. Right, yeah. Why did we go to university for? Did they? Did they have to get a university degree to do that? I don't
0: think so. I think you just have to look pretty these days to hold one of those. I tried sides, that so. as
1: well. I tried looking pretty. I don't. I don't care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you didn't hit the bar, Cheryl. <laughs> what
1: are you talking about? Oh my goodness! I've been publicly shamed.
0: That's it. <laughs> But the look, I mean, it it, it it does cost a lot of money. People don't tend to think about some of these, you know, traffic side of things. And um, yeah, if if it's six months worth of, you know, traffic management that you have to allow for and, you know, even if you're allowing for, you know, $100, $150, $200 worth of one person coming in for four hours or three hours or two hours, it just adds up quite significantly. Uh, and so traffic does play a big role. Again, you know, as part of the due diligence, no one really goes into traffic details per se a lot in, and a lot of times people look at traffic reports more from a visitor's parking perspective or turning points etc and they come in really late in the process and so while it's important it's one of those things where you know would you would it break a site no traffic is usually where you would find solutions to move things around that's what I've always, you know, felt. But it's also important to understand that, you know, if there is traffic management involved, which is different to the traffic reports, you just need to allow for those big contingencies coming in place, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And if, you've got, like, if you have larger sites when where it is going to impact on the fairly significant, significantly on the number of people and number of residents that are gonna be introduced into a particular area, council is gonna be really interested in your traffic reports and where your the traffic going into your development and the traffic that's going out of your you know new new community where they're turning circles and things like that visibility of of traffic that's coming coming through traffic lights that sort of thing
0: there is whole of like traffic surveys that they do right on one of the sites that i did you know they basically sat there or almost like two weeks, you know, measuring how many people, how many small cars and large cars pass through this particular point, and what time of the month, and what time of the day, and and so they use that, especially you know, in one of the VCAT cases, you know, where you know people were complaining, oh, you're building eight here, and you know, you're only providing two, and everyone has four cars these days, and you know, it's a small gully. Yeah, and so when you see when you see people going with. basically that's what they're doing that's exactly (laughs) what they're doing yes
1: again do you need a university degree for that
0: i don't i think for traffic reports maybe but i don't think that the person there with the clicker (laughs) yeah person (laughs) with the clicker no i don't think so i think you just need a thumb you know you just need to ensure that you have a thumb to be
1: really good at thumb wars that was that's part of the qualification like how good are you at thumb wars and how quickly my
0: six-year-old would do wonders
1: Can we, are they legally allowed to do that? If we, I reckon we should do that, you know, put our children out there with their little. T- t- t. Either way, I, di- I digress. How many more should we go through? Another two or three more? and um
0: Yes, uh, I think then that we can stop. I can kick off on the next one, which is quite favorite of mine, which is precedences. And I'm going to take your turn here. Everyone talks about precedences and they say, hey, check out the precedence in the area and see what's allowed for. Okay. While it's important, here is the stereotype that I'm going to break it out for people, okay. While the precedences are important, from council's perspective, they are irrelevant. Councils don't care what's happening to the next door property or the property across the road or what's happened previously to properties, you know, similar property down the road every case that goes to the council is assessed independently and so there has been instances and um, I have my own personal experience where a neighboring property has been approved by the council two years ago and the same policies would not apply to the next door property because the council has changed then now their local guidelines have changed or there is a new planner you know who is a Greenies fan and you know they want a jungle in the backyard so again Precedents precedences, while they're important, you know, sometimes you, know, you can't just depend on them when you're doing these due diligences. What's your experience been, Cheryl?
1: Yeah, I, and I agree. I, I totally agree. I, I, I look around at the precedence, but I don't necessarily 100% say that's all I can, that's all I can do. Um, um, I think that you, you need to be able to push the envelope a little bit. And I've you know, we've, we've done it in our, our, our projects before where you speak to council and actually they want a little bit more density or they want uh, some gentrification in the particular areas. So they'll give you a little bit more, more leeway. I've seen developments where everyone thought they could only build three, three level townhouses and a developer bought a, a really small site but was able to put units on it, three level units, which no one else did at the time. So you know, being really smart with design and so on and so forth. So yes, precedents use it as some level of a guide and, you know, have a really good planner and architect who who will sort of push push the boundaries a little bit. I say I'd rather sort of say this is the this is the best case scenario what I want to achieve and have council sort of pull it back.
0: Yes. Yes. It's always the case.
1: Rather than be too Conservative, as well, and and potentially miss out on some extra extra givvy. So yeah, I think it's a good guide. I think it's safe. However, don't be afraid to push the boundaries a bit as well.
0: Hundred percent. I don't think that I can add more over to you. Thank Let's you. catch a few more.
1: Catch a few more. We talked about these the Greenpeace overlays. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm going to pass it back to you so i don't save get the butterfly. i don't yeah i don't <laughs> i don't get sacrificed by the 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 green peace and the vegans out there the green no, no, piece
0: no. overlays you know and the the greenies of the world the floras and faunas you know the, the biodiversity the the koalas and um, you know save the butterfly save the moth you know overlays you know i i i i hate them with passion uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not that you hate koalas. Uh,
0: no, no. I look, I mean, I love koalas. I love butterflies. I don't love moths, but yeah, but it's, it's it, uh, you know, some of these are quite interesting uh, when it comes to save the frog and a particular species of the frog because they lay there and, you know, you have to be careful of, you know, how some of these things work. You
1: have to get a special frog person to actually come and do an assessment and a report. But, you know, you think about it. That that
0: you need a degree for that.
1: You need a degree for it, yes. And actually, that person was born and that was the purpose in their life to be the frog specialist for this exact...
0: I don't envy the job, Cheryl.
1: No, but they love frogs, right? I mean, this is what they're born for.
0: Yes, yes, yes. But I don't envy the job. But look, I mean, these these do exist. Unfortunately, they do. and uh, And you need to be very, very careful because... The, the Greenpeace lovers of the world or Australia, would definitely make your life a living misery if you decide to, you know, should I say, go arms in you know against the butterflies or the f- frogs or the moths <laughs> of those particular areas, or, or koalas, the beautiful koalas.
1: Not the moths, not the mosses, the, the moths. And you know, I am going to challenge that a little bit as well because I do I do love my my flora and and fauna. I um, I personally have looked at sites which I'm like, this is a great spot, but there are too many trees, and I don't want to cut. I don't want to touch it. That's my thing. I respect that there are areas where we need to preserve the the for, flora and fauna that are there, but then there are some some areas that you sort of go, oh, I've never seen a koala here. for like. 30 years or whichever, you know. And there's some that are, are quite blatantly obvious. I'd like to say they're obvious that they're, there is no special flora and fauna. But I guess the whole point is that you've got, you've got to go through that process and make sure that you tick all the boxes and so on. And again, there is someone out there who is a frog specialist who...
0: Yeah, would we'll come out and give you a letter. Yes. yes. I think that's, that's a good segue to, you know, some of the very important ones around the heritage listings, right? And so the cultural heritage listing, I think um, there are two types of heritage listings. One, you are where you're protecting the type of the property that is there and so you can't change the facade at all and you keep it as is. And then there are heritage uh, listings or heritage overlays in relation to the aboriginals and you know the elders of the world where they used to live there and practice there and, and you have to reach out to elder or a community person to come in and ensure that the site does not have any of those and I, I respect those I think that's very very important to ensure that you know you're not side cutting and you know find some remains or, or, or some family living there etc.
1: Bad juju in the development projects of no-no.
0: 100%. I I tend to stay away from cultural heritages or heritage overlays as a rule in general. I don't know. I think everyone has their own preferences. There are developers who, you know, like working in those areas and, you know, are okay with, you know, seeking these reports and getting someone out there. I always feel that, you know, there needs to be some sort of respect to some of these areas. You know, they used to live here hundreds of years ago and, of course, you know, you are tampering away with, you know, people who used to live here and, you know, who might have passed away and, you know, are buried there. And so, yeah, I'm a very sort of, should I say, sensitive about some of these things, you know, that, you know, you shouldn't be touching some of these things.
1: If it's a butterfly, not nah, what's of like? that's it.
0: Yes, yes. I, I think the soul for the butterfly I'm not so much scared of, but the soul of a person or a human I'm definitely scared <laughs> of.
1: <laughs> might have been reincarnated into a butterfly. That's if you believe in reincarnation.
0: Yeah, a, a fat butterfly. Yes,
1: it's it, it is one of those things. i mean Aboriginal elders getting reports to be able to say and to identify whether there are artifacts or remains. I think that's that's a really big thing, and just to be able to respect that culturally, I think that is is a uh, personally as a developer, I think that's a really important thing to do.
0: Definitely, I think I'm going to wrap this up with the. With one statement that I wrote when I was thinking about you know doing this podcast, and this is more about you know when it comes to property development, you know it's never as bad as what they say, but it's also not as good as they say, right? So get yourself in there and just do your bloody due diligence yourself, right? Just don't trust and believe others.
1: Yeah, and don't get to, you know don't get stuck on it too much as well. If you've done enough. And there is a certain level of there is enough, then you know, and you feel that you've you've ticked as much of the boxes as you can, it's important to also take action so don't don't suffer from paralysis analysis. If you're not doing too little and you're doing you know sufficient, then science you do have to be able to keep moving forward and and there's all going to be a whole lot of surprises along the way anyhow.
0: Yes, yes. Now, every development you know, brings in its own challenges and there is always a solution for every problem. That's what I've always felt when it comes to property development. You just need to be super creative about how you go around finding these solutions and the person who finds the best solution makes the most money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Moss. Not Moss. Thank you. Moss. We like Moss.
0: <laughs> Let's wrap we this up. Like Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Hopefully you enjoyed, you had a lot of fun similar to what we did. Look, if you like the content, you know, feel free to drop in and share some of your stories in relation to the due diligence side of things or property developments side of things. Haters, like us, subscribers, thank you for listening to us. Stay safe, keep investing, keep smiling. This is Moss and Cheryl checking out. Ciao, ciao.
1: bye bye.